So let's hear this morning what God says to us. Let's not just hear, but truly listen. Uh, In doing that, let us respond in true repentance, faith, and obedience, as Jesus calls us to do. And so, turning to our sermon text this morning, going back uh, to our passages in the book of Acts, so turning uh, right in your Bible, past uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, to the book of Acts, that ancient record of the earliest Christian church. After our Lord Jesus Christ was raised and he ascended back to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit, we saw, chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, uh, and now he sends out his disciples or his apostles, uh, first of all, to Jerusalem and Judea, the region in which Jerusalem was. Uh, Then we'll see eventually to Samaria uh, and then to the ends of the earth to bring the gospel of the kingdom uh, to the ends of the world. Uh, We are the result of that this morning. So Acts chapter 3, we're going to read just chapter 3. Chapter 4 goes along with it, but we'll come back to that next Sunday. Uh, Acts chapter 3. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man, uh, the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold in the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ, his Messiah, the anointed promised Savior, would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, so that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord 
and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke with the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And to these words, all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. So let me start by saying that as, uh, as Christians, as classic Christians, as old school Christians in the Reformed tradition, so we're a Christian church, but as you can tell by our name, uh, we are a Reformed church, so there's a particular tradition that we uh, are derived from. As classic Christians, as old school, we might say Christians in that Reformed tradition, sometimes called Calvinists, we of all people should know that God is God's, and we are not. That he's almighty. He's the maker of the heavens and the earth, as we've confessed. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. And we know, as we sang this morning from some of our songs, that God is sovereign over all things. He's the king. He's the ruler over all things. He's made all things, from him all things come, and in his hand all things consist. There's not one stray atom in this entire universe. He's God's, and we're not. And therefore, God can perform miracles whenever, wherever, however he desires. He's God. He's God. And so it's not for us to judge people's experience, because we're going to hear, as, as we know, People say certain things. But it's important for us to recognize from the, from the get-go, right out of the shoot this morning, that it's God who's God, and God can do whatever he wants. He's almighty. He's sovereign. He's the ruler. We believe that, right? We believe that. God is God. And so, by definition, a miracle is a supernatural activity. It's God entering into our space and our time to do something that's contrary to common things, contrary to the natural way the world that he's made operates. That's why we call them miracles. They're supernatural acts. Uh, They are uh, God's entering into our world to do something that's not normal. That's why they're called miracles. That's why we talk about the miraculous. That's why they're called the powers of God in the, in, the, in the New Testament. They're called signs. They're called wonders for a reason, because God does them. And so when we see, for example, every summer I 
even I think during COVID. I mean, during summer, we see on PCH and Oceanside, uh, downtown Oceanside, down at the pier, uh, there's usually a big sign that's uh, put upon uh, the, the street lights and it's stretched out over PCH. And every single summer, there is a miracle rally in downtown Oceanside. You may not know that, but there is. Every single summer. By definition, you cannot plan a miracle. If God is the one who does miracles, you can't plan the time and the place. You can't rent the facility to bring God in and to do miracles. God is God. You can't control him. By definition, you cannot do that. Only God can perform miracles. Only God can. It's God who is the one who, uh, who, who does the, the miraculous. And, but it's we who turn them into mundane things. And so we give God a bad rap by our, meaning just collectively as Christians, by the way that we describe God, that way, the things that we say about God, the crusades that we have, the stadiums that we fill, the buildings that we fill, the, the outside amphitheaters that we fill, uh, even by having so-called healing services, healing liturgies. We turn the miraculous into the mundane. We turn God's intervention into the ordinary. That's contrary to what we see here in Acts 3. Why are you looking at us, the apostles say, as if by our own power, our own personal piety, that we've done this. That's God who's done it. So on the one hand, we want to affirm that from the get-go, God is God. God can do anything he wants. He's God. On the other hand, we want to be careful in how we understand miracles, the miraculous, the supernatural, and so forth, because we, in our own little, little twisted ways, we like to turn ourselves into God. In fact, the miracles in Acts, we, we saw uh, in Acts 2, that, that great miracle of the fact that the apostles spoke in languages that they never learned. And people heard from all across the Mediterranean, they heard in their own languages the wonderful works of God. We've seen from that, that miracle, then led Peter to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to call people to repentance and faith, and God did his work. The, mir- the, mir- the miraculous miracles are always signs leading to something greater than themselves. And here we see it again. A miracle is performed that leads to preaching about Jesus Christ, that leads to the call to repentance and faith. And we'll see something even more so, leads to even the sign of something greater than that conversion. So there's the miracle, there's the inner reality of conversion, but there's the greater reality of all things, we'll see. All things are pictured in miracles. The miracles existed, the physical healings, for the the greater miracle of the healing of souls, the conversion of dead, lifeless sinners. And those miracles, the conversion of dead, lifeless sinners like you and me, exist to show us that there's a world to come. There's a world to come in which God is going to renew all things, restore all things as the prophets have spoken. And so let's look here. First few verses or so, verses 1 through 11. Just notice the sign itself, the physiological sign, the actual physical thing that's happening. The apostles in this story, Peter and John, they're 
at the temple. I mentioned last time that they are, there's still a period of time in which the, the, the Christian church is meeting near and around the temple. And they are there at the hour of prayer. It's the ninth hour, and so we start at 6 a.m. This is 3 p.m. Why are they there at 3 p.m.? Well, every morning and every evening, uh, there were required Old Testament sacrifices and offerings that were lifted up to God uh, as symbolic of prayer, that the whole day and that all of life belonged to God. And so the, the priests would offer in the morning a sacrifice and in the evening at 3 p.m. a sacrifice. And people would gather, they would pray, they would join in singing songs. And so there they are, they are there at that, day, that, that, that time of prayer, 3 p.m., for the evening sacrifices. And because they are there, there's going to be crowds there, including this beggar who's there a lot. We'll see in chapter 4 that he's at least 40 years old. He's at least 40 years old. He's lame from birth. He cannot walk. He has to be brought, we are told, there every single time people gather around the temple. And so he's been, his entire life has been this. And he's expecting something. He needs something. He can't provide for himself. Imagine a world in which there is no, uh, there, 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 there are no food banks uh, there is no state, there is no national, federal program, uh, what do they call it, SNAP, WIC, food, we call it food stamps back in the day. There, are, there is no permanent disability. There are no safety nets as we describe them. You would have to be brought to a temple, you would be brought to a crowd, and you have to sit there asking for alms every day just to eat. And so he's looking here, this man, as, as he did every single day for his, his existence, at least his adult existence, he's looking for something. He's looking for some money so that he can buy some food. We might say that he's looking for uh, just a little, uh, a little pick-me-up for his blood sugar. He's looking for a, a meal to lift up his blood sugar, but what he gets is the lifting up of his body and his soul. He's made strong, verse 7 says. Uh, this verb is only used by Luke. He's made strong. His ankles, his knees, his legs, they are miraculously healed so that he's able to stand and leap and, 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 and walk alongside the apostles in the temple. And that leads the crowds, notice. They, they know this man. They see him there every day. They know his life story, and perhaps many of them have helped him. He's walking, he's leaping. He's praising God. And they see this, and they are themselves in awe and wonder at this miraculous. How is it that this man now can stand? And let alone stand by himself. He can walk, and let alone walk, he can leap. He had to be carried there every single day of his life. And notice what he's doing there. The apostles tell him in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately his feet, and immediately his ankles were made strong, leaping up, he began to walk, and then we see walking, leaping, verse 8, praising God. Now, on the one hand, Luke's describing what he was doing. On the other hand, he's telling us that this is a fulfillment of what the prophet said would happen. Turn quickly to Isaiah chapter 35. In Isaiah 35, there, uh, I won't read the whole chapter, but there's this prophecy uh, of the desert turning into a garden. 
the desert turning into a garden. The Israelites were led through the desert into exile, uh, and spiritually speaking, they were, as we read from Ezekiel 2, they were rebellious, and so their spiritual life was like a wilderness. It was like a dry, arid desert. But the prophet says that the desert shall rejoice and blossom. The dry land shall be glad and blossom abundantly and so forth. The imagery of a garden. If we know our Bibles, kids, we know when we read about gardens, they should remind us of a particular garden. Do you know which garden we should be reminded of in Isaiah 35? If I say the garden, you probably know the garden of Eden, don't you? So the prophet is saying that, spiritually speaking, the Israelites are like a desert people. They are dead and lifeless, but yet there's going to be a time to come in which God is going to water this desert and it's going to blossom and become like a garden, like the garden, meaning that they're going to have new life. God will make them, again, his people. They shall see, verse 2 of Isaiah 35, the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And look at verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold your God, and so forth. He will come and save. Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. There's a day coming, the prophet said, when all these signs and wonders were going to be done. Why? Because it would show something greater. Not just that people's bodies would be healed, but that their souls would be healed. Their relationship to God would be healed. Their alienation from God would be removed. They would once again be reconciled to God on good terms as friends. He as father, they as sons and daughters. God was going to remove the curse. He was going to renew the world. And first of all, he was going to start with re- by renewing individual sinners. Recall the story of Jesus when John the Baptist's disciples, John was in prison and John's disciples went and found Jesus and they asked John, Luke chapter 7, uh, are you the one who is to come? Are you the promised Messiah? Or should we look for another one? Do you recall what Jesus said to John's disciples? He quoted Isaiah 35. The blind see, the deaf uh, can hear, the mute can speak, the lame can walk, the crippled can, 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 can leap, and so forth, like the deer. Jesus didn't just say yes or no. He said, Show, tell him what, the, what things are happening. Why? Because the prophet said that those things would happen when the Messiah would come. One of, our, one of the great hymns of the Christian faith, based on these passages, has, this, has that line that says, Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, those who cannot speak. Your loosened tongues employ, ye blind, behold your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. So there's this sign here of this man who was born Uh, unable to walk, unable to stand, unable to run, unable to leap, but yet he's doing all these things. Why? Why? Well, of course, because of the power of God, but what does Peter, or what do Peter and John say? The significance of this sign of this wonder. Notice what God has done. 
and then why God has done it. That's what we see here. What God has done and why God has done it. And it's all summarized at verse 26, that last verse that I read. God, having raised up his servant, meaning Jesus, God's raised up Jesus, he sent him to you first, meaning the Jews, to bless you. To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. God raised up Jesus to bless the Israelites. And because God has raised up Jesus, he now can raise up, literally from the dead or from men, uh, or like men like this who were unable to walk, stand, run, leap, to do this, to bless them, to turn them back to him. Well, what's God done? Why has he done this? He's glorified or he's raised up his son. And you see there this sort of series of contrasts at verse 12, 13, and following uh, where, where Peter says to the, to the assembled masses there in the temple, the Jewish people, you delivered Jesus to death, yet God has glorified him. You wanted a murderer released. Barabbas, give us Barabbas, the gospel tells us. You wanted a murderer to be released, not the holy one. Notice the contrast there, and righteous one. And this great irony, you killed the author of life. Yet God is glorified. That little word there for author, translated author in the ESV, a trailblazer, the one who goes before, the one who leads others in the same path as he, the one who has been raised up to life, and he then as the trailblazer, the one who goes before, the forerunner, he then leads others into life as well. So God has glorified, he's raised up his son Jesus Christ, and he's also raised up this man, he's healed this man. He's made this man strong. It's the only time that word is used in the, is, in, is in Luke's gospel and, uh, and here in, in Acts. Only Luke, uh, as an author, uses that verb. He's made this man strong. So note that God's raising up of Jesus is the reason that he was able to raise up this man. And that man's healing was then the opportunity for the apostles to preach about Jesus. We, we have a little, a little sort of proverbial statement or idea that we sometimes talk about uh, uh, in our culture. Is it, uh, it's sort of a form of a question, is it better to give someone uh, who's hungry a fish or to give them a fishing pole and to teach them how to fish? What's better, give a person to meet their immediate need, give them a fish? Or to give them a fishing pole so that they can go continue to catch fish on their own? Jesus and the apostles could have just healed everybody if they wanted to. They could have gone around just raising people up if they, if they, if they had so desired. And then sent people on their way. Then they would have some other problem. They would come back to him and he would do the same thing all over again. Or they would do the same thing all over again. But Jesus and the apostles, just like here, did something different. They did the proverbial give him a fishing pole, as it were. They healed, but they also explained and taught, discipled on the significance of what it meant to be healed. It's not just that this man now can walk and he can stand up and he can run and he can leap around like a deer. 
Now, this has happened so that all of you might internally, in your souls, experience the same. To be raised up from death to life. So that your souls might be healed and cleansed of sin. So that you might praise God. That's the significance of this. God has raised up his son. That son has raised up this man. And he's done that so that I can stand before you and say, repent and believe and come to him and be refreshed. The big signs that say healing rally and healing uh, uh, miracle rally and so forth, they only exist for themselves. They only exist for themselves. They don't explain the meaning of things. They exist for themselves. Why did God do this? We know what he has done. He's raised up Jesus. He raised up this man. But why? What's the significance of it? What is the teaching here? What is the, the, the discipleship that is then uh, brought to them? Again, he's, verse 26, God raised up his servant Jesus to bless you. Well, what does it mean to be blessed? Notice that there are several uh, phrases here. Uh, or there, verse 19, there's this call to repentance so that, so there's these three sort of that statements there, purposes of the repentance. So why has God done this? That you would repent, Peter and John say. Repent and turn back. There, there are two verbs in the New Testament for repentance. They're both used here in the same, in the same uh, breath. Repent uh, and turn back. They both mean, uh, one means sort of a, a mental change of mind. That's the first one. Repent. Metanoeo is the verb. Uh, the other one, turn back. Epistrepho means not just to turn your mind around, but your entire life. It's not just a mental thing to turn to Jesus Christ. It's to turn your life around. Why? Because repentance, the call to repentance is the warning sign of the Christian life. Putting a warning sign in front of the world and saying, turn around, turn back, danger ahead. There's death ahead. There's a cliff and you're about to go off the cliff. The road is out. Turn back, turn away and live. God has raised up Jesus and the apostles healed this man to tell Israel to turn away from their sins. The same rebelliousness in the hearts of the Israelites in the days of Ezekiel chapter 2. The same rebelliousness existed here in Acts 3. The same in your hearts. Turn away. Turn back. The path of life apart from Jesus Christ is nothing but death. It might seem pleasurable at the moment. It might seem fun at the moment. It might seem prosperous for a time. But it ultimately leads to death. And I don't just mean bodily death and then you go to sleep forever. No, everlasting death, punishment, cursedness, separation from the grace and mercy and the hope of grace and mercy of God. Turn, the prophet says and the apostles say. One hymn says, just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt. Fightings and fears, within and without. O Lamb of God, I come. That's what repentance is. We come just as we are to God with our sins, with our doubts, with our 
uh, with our minds might possibly even being disturbed about the claims of Jesus Christ, we come, though, with our sins to him to be cleansed. So that he might then turn us around. So that he might then heal our souls and give us a U-turn, the road of life. Why did God raise up this man so that they would repent? And even more so, that they would be forgiven. Verse 19 says that your sins may be blotted out, washed off, erased forever. It's interesting that this, that this image is the one that the apostles use, blotting out. My sermon point says forgiven, but blotted out. Washed, erased. Ancient ink uh, had little to no acid in it. George gave me a fountain pen recently, so this is coming to life once again. Uh, use a fountain pen, use ink, and that stuff's indelible. It's just always going to be there. You can't erase it. Right? There, there are erasable pens. Uh, we have pencils, we have erasers and so forth, and you can, for the most part, erase what you've written, you made mistakes, but with, a, with, with actual ink that you have to put onto a tip of a pen and write on paper, it doesn't go away. Why? Because it has an acidity to it uh, that adheres the ink to the fibers of the paper. Ancient ink had little to no acidity. And so, in a sense, sort of, not exactly, but in a sense, the, the ink kind of floated upon the top of the paper, if you can put it that way. It was washable. You take a wet sponge and you can wash on a papyrus scroll. You could erase, blot out the ink, and you can write over. And that's what they would do because paper was super duper expensive in the ancient world. You couldn't just, like I can, click a button on Amazon and get a whole ream of paper, a whole case of reams of paper delivered to my front door. You couldn't just go to Staples or Office Max or Walmart or wherever it might be that you get paper and just get enormous quantities of paper. You had to go down to a riverbed, get the papyrus, you had to squish the papyrus. You had to roll it out. You had to dry it out. You had to put papyrus going various directions and so forth, had various layers so that the ink would have some place to sit and so forth. It was expensive. It was costly. It was time-consuming. And so they used ink that was able to be washed off and erased to some extent so that you can reuse the same scrolls because it was expensive. And Luke uses here, as he writes and records this, sermon of Peter and John, the fact that our sins can be blotted out, washed off, erased from the record of our life. Why did God raise this man? Not just for his sake, not for the apostles' reputation. It's not by our own power and piety that we've done this. That your sins might be blotted out, washed, erased. It's the same exact uh, image that's used in the New Testament later on in the uh, book of Revelation uh, where God is described as one who wipes away, who blots away our tears. And of Jesus in Revelation five verse, uh, 3 verse 5 where Jesus is the one who's praised because he is the one who will not erase your names from the Lamb's everlasting book of life. He will not erase them. He can, but he will not. So God did all this to cause them, to bring them, to lead them to repentance so that they might be 
uh, forgiven, have their sins blotted off, washed off, erased forever from before the face of Almighty God. So that, again, there's another that, you would be refreshed. This is the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. And it has a sense of rest and relief. Refreshment, as it's translated here. Refreshed. It's a way of describing the spiritual revival, the restoration, the renewal, the rest of soul that we get when we come to Jesus Christ. Why do you think Jesus says in in the gospel, uh, that wonderful statement, that great gospel statement, come to me, all ye who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a different word, but the same idea. What's the image that he gives there of the, of the, of the, the person? What's the heavy ladenness? What's the burden that we bear as human beings? Our sins. Our sins. To live life without having those sins blotted off, removed from you, is to live a burdensome, heavy-laden life with sin. But Jesus says, come to me, and I will give you rest. He promises to remove the burden, to give rest to, to us who are weary. We are weary of the sin. We are weary of what the sin weighs us down with and how it causes us to be, uh, to be exhausted in the travel of life. He promises to revive your soul. You see people running around these days uh, jogging with those weighted backpacks. See those? Sometimes they're, they're sort of camouflaged. They have sort of military uh, look to them. People do that because they want to get extra, you know, extra cardio in. Uh, the weight, of course, uh, adds muscle, uh, helps burn fat and so forth. But imagine living life like that, not just for a quick run or two, but your whole life weighed down with a weight that you can't remove yourself. That's what it is to live in sin, apart from Christ. God performed this miracle so that he might tell all. Notice he didn't heal everybody. He healed this one man. So that everyone would get the benefit of it. The application is here is not that God's going to heal somebody today so that we can all be healed. No, the application is that we would hear what the gospel is. Because of the sign, because of the wonder and the miracle, so that we might turn in repentance, that we might be uh, forgiven, having our sins blotted away, that we might be refreshed, renewed, revived, given rest of soul in the place of our sins. Now here, something even, even more amazing, because normally the, the, the miracles then lead to the preaching of Christ that leads then to the Repentance and the actual conversion. So the, the, the physical signs are always signs of something internal going on. The, the rest of soul, the, the healing of soul, the forgiveness of sins. But here, Peter and John, as Luke records, says something else. We have Jesus' resurrection, which then leads to the healing of this man, which, mean, which lead to the healing of his soul, the forgiveness of his sins, and all those who would repent in turn. But something better. Something larger. Something bigger. He says there again in verse number uh, 20, uh, when he says that time the refreshing may come, and then he says, and that 
he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. There's a lot of stuff the prophets promised. But in summary, Isaiah 35, that the wilderness of the world would be turned into the Garden of Eden. That the fallenness of the world would be resurrected in newness. Again, this is the only time this word used in the New Testament is restoring of all things. What is he saying? It's what Jesus said. Jesus spoke in a, using different words, but in Matthew 19, he said that the end goal of all of human history was what he called the regeneration. The regeneration. The new life. It's what Paul meant when he talked about in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that uh, for all of us who are in Jesus Christ, we are already a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. And the new creation that exists in us, our souls, our having rest, our being refreshed, our being forgiven, our having our sins blotted out, that is a, 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 itself a sign and a picture internally of something much greater to happen, which is the, the newness of all things. The new heavens, the new earth. The old has passed, the new has come. Back in my day, we'd go to the movies, and uh, there, there would always be uh, on, the, on the screen, or the curtain would go back, of course, and uh, then there would be a, a little sort of word or two on the screen that would say, uh, preview of coming attractions. Same thing today, but at least back in the day, it was a little more dramatic preview of coming attractions. Everyone would sit up, you know, what's the new movie coming up and what's going to happen soon and so forth. And you see a little clip or two, a little trailer we call them today, a little trailer of what was going to come up in the movie theaters. The healing of sinners, the forgiveness of sins, the miracle of the resurrection of our souls from death to life, regeneration, conversion, repentance, faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, these are all... The, the preview of that greater thing that is still yet to come, the renewal of the heavens and the earth, the new heavens, new earth, the making of all things brand new. And so God did this sign. God performed this miracle and this wonder in this singular man amidst an entire crowd of people to teach them all the reality of who he is. But he's the one who raised up his son from the dead. He's the one who raised up this man from lameness. He's the one who leads sinners to repentance. He's the one who then takes sinners and blots out their sins. He's the one who takes burdened sinners and makes them refreshed and full of rest and full of relief and full of refreshment. He's the one who, in doing all that, gives us a little preview of what he ultimately is going to do. Renew the heavens and the earth so that we might live with God as he intended to in that original garden. To know God rightly with our minds. To love God from our hearts. To live with God in perfect fellowship and friendship. To know him. And so the gospel, that's the gospel today. That's the good news to us. And it's the same gospel that not only spoke to them, but speaks to you and me today. 
So we hear that God is able to do this, that God is the one who does miracles and God's the one who's almighty and powerful. We hear that God is a God of grace and mercy and love. Harlots and publicans and thieves in holy triumph join. Saved is the sinner that believes from cares as great as mine. Murderers and ye hellish crew. What a great line for him. Murderers and ye hellish crew in holy triumph join. Believe the Savior died for you. For me, the Savior died. Let's believe this morning. Embrace Jesus for the blotting out of our sins, the refreshing of our souls, and ultimately to point us to that new and everlasting life that awaits us, that awaits us not just in eternity after we die, but the ultimate reality of all things, the turning of all things new, all the things the prophets promised, God has already begun to do in our hearts by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Hear us today, we pray, Lord, as we come to you, we ask that you, had, uh, that you would turn us to you as the prophet prayed. Turn us that we might be turned. Forgive us of our sins. Give rest to our souls. Point us beyond this life to that ultimate life to come where all things are new. And to that purpose and that goal and end, we pray that the Lord's Supper would would refresh us, assure us that our sins are forgiven, and point us to that day when we will sit at that table, the table of the Father Abraham and all those who follow his faith, and that we are served in fellowship with you around that eternal wedding feast of the Lamb. Help us, Lord, to believe. Help our unbelief. Encourage us in our struggles. Bless us, we pray, so that we might be a blessing to others to hear the good news that God loves sinners. We ask it in his name and all of God's people say, Amen. Let's sing from Isaiah chapter 35. Uh, On the other side of one of the inserts, you'll see the title. When the King Shall Come Again, Isaiah 35. And let's stand up and sing all four verses.